0: Give us a great deal of pleasure, brethren and sisters, to introduce our first speaker, First Class, Brother Dennis Gillett of Oxford, England. And he will deliver a series on Bible men, the way they were. And the title for the First Class, Joseph, From rags to riches. good. Good morning, everyone. By way of introduction, this first address, there is one thing that needs to be emphasized, and that is that um, these addresses, this series, is designed to observe the characters of certain Bible men and what we are concerned with is noticing the details about them as those details are revealed in the word of God and reading between the lines where reading between the lines is justified so that we can see what they were like that's what we mean by the way they were to see what they were really like as far as we can and then to draw conclusions from their lives, in order to help her own. So, I want you to understand, brethren and sisters, that is the objective in this particular series. Now, I know well enough that there are other ways of looking at Bible characters, I know that. There are studies which are thematic and prophetic, and which of course can be very interesting and very profitable indeed I understand that all I'm saying is that that is not the system in this case all I am concerned to do so that you won't be disappointed all I am concerned to do is to look carefully incisively if we can seeking to unveil the characters of these men so that we can learn something for ourselves. So, with that little introduction then, we're thinking of Joseph from rags to witches. Now, it seems to me when seeking to make an assessment of Bible men, sometimes it's of great value to notice how the narrative about their lives in the word of God is related to the remainder of the biblical revelation. Now I choose my words carefully there because I didn't say how they are related to the the development of God's purpose, of course that's important, but I'm saying it is profitable sometimes to notice how what is recorded about them relates to the rest of the Bible. And if you apply that measurement to Joseph, he is revealed as a man of very considerable significance. As it appears to me, he was a kind of, well, what I would call a Christophany. That is, things happened to Joseph on one level, which happened to Christ on a much higher level. Joseph's life, to some extent, was microcosmic of the Messiah. As we Christadelphians would say, he was a type. He was a type of the man of Nazareth. We can quickly think of some example. Uh, Jacob loved all his children, but there was between him and Joseph and a special relationship. Indeed, the record is explicit. In Genesis 37, verse 3, it says, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. This is special love and um, Jacob had other children but he loved this one man especially. Now in the Psalms, you can read this about God in Psalm 103, like as a father pitieth his children so hath the Lord compassion on them that fear him. That tells us that God is like a father, that is to say, he has fatherly feelings. He is compassionate to those whom he loves. But, once, in the course of human time, in the process of the centuries, a maid of Israel is with child by the Holy Spirit. And the holy thing which is born of her is the child of the eternal spirit. The child of God who has fatherly feelings. And this child is different from every other. Listen to the voice from heaven, this is my son, the beloved, in thee I am well pleased. The father loves the son from the foundation of the world, there was between them, as there was between Jacob and Joseph, there was between them, the God of heaven and the child, a special relationship. Or again, Joseph was rejected by his brethren. It says in Genesis 37, verse 8, they hated him for his words. Think of that. They hated him for his words. Now, of the Messiah, it is written, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. His brethren did not believe on him, and those who should have been his brethren said, thou blasphemest. They hated him because of his words. Or again, Joseph was sold as a slave by his brethren for a slave's price. The Messiah was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. Or again, uh, Joseph the Hebrew, the freeman, became a servant in Egypt. Of the Messiah, it is written, he took the form of a servant and humbled himself. Or again, in Genesis 39, we have the record of the temptations of Joseph, about which we have read. They were persistent and subtle and devilish and insidious. And indeed, he stands in the book of Genesis as the one man who was tempted more than any other. Now, of the Messiah, it is written, he was tempted in all things, like as we are, yet without sin. And his temptations were more uh, keenly felt because his nature was more sensitive. Or again, Joseph, after his condemnation, when he was vindicated, was exalted to be a prince and a saviour in Egypt. And he became indeed the life-giver through the very bread he provided for hungry people. And of the Messiah it is written, For which cause God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Indeed he is called the King of kings and the Lord of lords. John says, In him was life. This is the bread that cometh down from heaven and giveth life to the world. The the evidence, you see, is crystallized in the comparison of two verses, showing that what happened in both cases was the combined result of human wickedness on the one hand, and the divine purpose on the other. Genesis 50 verse 20, And as for you, ye meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. Genesis 50, verse 20. God meant it for good, to save much people alive. Now in Acts 2, verse 23. Him, being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye, by the hands of lawless men, be crucified and slay, whom God raised up. And then, again, the Egyptians gave Joseph a name. It's written in Genesis, the name they gave him. It's written, I suppose, in the Egyptian language. But translated, it means the savior of the world. This non-Hebrew nation called him the saviour of the world, Joseph. And in the New Testament, the Samaritans, the place where no Hebrew, no self-respecting Hebrew would ever go, the Samaritans, they gave him a name too. And the name they gave him was the saviour of the world. Well, that's it, that's what I mean. But w- without straining the evidence, it's quite clear, it seems to me, that in a remarkable way, this Joseph was a wonderful type of Christ. His life um, is the significant unveiling of, of things which are at the very centre of biblical revelation. Now, the thing to remember is that in the midst of this high calling, He was a man of like passions with ourselves, and that's what we're trying to look at now. We're trying to look at that fact without prejudice, to see that this Bible man, well, to see what he was like. And in that way, we may help ourselves in the process. So we're going to think about Joseph County. We've seen what a significant man he was in the biblical revelation. Let's think about his character. I remember years ago, at a Bible class in Oxford, uh, the subject was Joseph. And in the discussion that followed, one man in the Bible class said that he felt a certain amount of sympathy with Joseph's brethren. He felt that, to some extent, Joseph came out of the narrative, and I'm quoting his own words now, not mine. Joseph came out of the narrative, as he said, a bit of a prig. Uh, He said he was 17, out with his brothers, and he brought to his father an evil report about his brethren. And then later on he came to them in a very superior way and extolled his own importance. And the man said he thought that he would probably have reacted very much like Joseph's brethren did. He said nothing is more calculated to rub you up the wrong way than for a young upstart to try lording it over his elders, especially when he splits on them on fairies. A bit of a prig. I hope you won't be shocked by that. Don't think too hardly of him. He's a good man, the man in Oxford. He was, after all, honestly telling us how he felt. And anyway, his words did provoke us to look even more incisively at Josie, to come to his defence. Well, here's something to think of by way of balancing the argument. In some respects, you know, it's not an easy thing to be a favorite. Many a man has wished fervently that those who show special favors would stop. Not always the way of bringing joy, it's favors don't always bring safety. Of course, it's nice to have somebody's affection, and somebody's loving care, of course it is, but When people whose affection you possess either die or they go away or in some way they're removed, what then? Well, sometimes all the stored up resentment of your companions has full and unfettered expression. So it's not easy to be a favorite, and in Joseph's case it was especially difficult. If you're willing to read between the lines, it was not just a case of resentment. It was not merely annoyance at this young man's seeming self-importance. The record says in Genesis 37, verse 4, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. And in Genesis 37, verse 8, his brethren said unto him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And even his father felt that this was a bit too much, and he said, as you know, rebukingly, in verse ten of Genesis thirty-seven, Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brethren envied him. But but do you not get the feeling, brothers and sisters, that Jacob said this to Joseph more for the benefit of the others than for anything else. That is to say, it was an attempt to appear fair, to allay their anger and to calm their jealousy by, by seeming to rebuke the young upstart brother. Because notice what it says at the end of verse 11 about Jacob, it says, but Jacob kept the saying in mind. He kept the saying of Joseph in mind, as though he sensed the ring of truth in the words which Joseph had spoken, as though, with some mysterious insight, Jacob saw the destiny of the child that he loved best. So, I want to put it to you, uh, well, this, which opposes the idea that Joseph was a prig. You see, what he said about his dreams, and he said it more than once, Brought him the hatred of his brethren and the rebuke of his father. Now, I want to tell you something. And it's this. What Joseph said, I wouldn't have said. I wouldn't have said. And I'll tell you why. I'm too artful. That's why. I would know the effect it would produce, and I would want to avoid it, however much I thought it to be true. I am too artful to do that. But I detect nothing of this, you see, in the attitude of Joseph, and therefore I am driven to the conclusion that what he said and what he did was done and said quite artlessly. He is not a man looking sideways to see how he is doing and what effect he is having. Openly and artlessly he told the dream, and he behaved here like he is going to behave in other places, and later on, evidently quite honest and open. Without any intrigue, he said what he believed, and he reaped the consequences. He is not an ingenious schemer, a wild boy, a clever dick. He is not. He is an open, honest man, artlessly speaking his mind, and then finding that his brethren didn't like And if there is blame to be laid, it looks as though his brethren really are the villains, envy and jealousy and hatred towards him. Because they were insensitive to their father's especial love for the child born to him through the woman that he loved best of all. So you see, sometimes it is difficult to be a favorite. And Joseph discovered it, I think. And it was not his fault. To some extent, it was his misfortune because it brought him eventually brutality and suffering and the pit. Well, now, the narrative you know well, and I don't propose to go through it uh, again in detail. You know what happened to Joseph. The best-loved son became a slave, sold by his brethren, the children of Israel, and came by this means to live in Egypt, the land of the master race, let's not forget it, the land of the master race, and it is there that we now must look at him again. So let's think of Joseph in the house of Potiphar, about which we read earlier today. And and, and notice how marvelously he progressed in spite of the circumstances. He was plainly an honest man, industrious, competent and hardworking. Now, very often this brings uh, results, doesn't it? Most successful men, I think, would admit it, that they get on by their own efforts. This is the way to success. Hard work, conscientiousness, faithfulness and honesty. But we know something more. We know that as well as Joseph's competence and honesty, we know that it was God's will that made Joseph prosper. And in the process... Potiphar himself and his household was blessed as well. Now in Genesis 39, there's one sentence that's first of all significance. Verse 6, it says, Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. Now, you may think that that's splendid. You would all like to be like that. We would. A goodly person and well-favored. But you see, in the case of Joseph, It got him into a very difficult situation. A situation in a way in which there was no middle course. He was wooed and pursued by a woman whom he must either refuse and awaken against himself her undying hate or else he must accept and violate his whole allegiance to God. There was no middle course in this situation. Now it's very interesting to notice how Joseph measured it. Indeed it's a lesson in honesty. In verse 9 he said... How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's a very important sentence. All sin is against God. Men may call it by other names. Men may call it crime, maladjustment, lack of education. The Bible calls it sin, and it is against God. Let's not mistake it. I told you we should be talking about it. It is against God. You may sin with others, as David did with Bathsheba, but in the end it's against God, and David confessed it. He said, against thee only have I sinned and done this evil. Joseph knew it and said it. Now, of course, it could have been you I suppose, that there were mitigating circumstances. When a slave is commanded, does he not have to obey? Isn't it a case of diminished responsibility? But you see, there are some things, brethren and sisters, where, when all the peripheral arguments are stripped aside, a man cannot be neutral. This is one. But you can mark the strain, the insidious power of the temptation. See, in the Bible, every word is important. And in verse 10 of Genesis 39, it says, as she spoke to Joseph, day by day that he hearkened not unto her day by day think of the ruthless persistence of the temptress day after day why was she so persistent because in verse 11 you see he makes what we might call a special effort in verse 11 It says, and it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his work, and there was none of the men of the house there within. I should guess that that was her doing. She fixed it. This was her best effort yet. See, you have to read between the lines here. She was a frustrated woman. You'll pardon me for mentioning this, but we're adults and we mean business. She was a frustrated woman. Now notice in verse 14 how she speaks to the servants about her husband. See, he hath brought in an Hebrew unto us to mock us. You do not usually run your husband down to the servants if you respect him and honor him, do you? Not even in Egypt you don't. And you don't just insert the personal pronoun he. See what he's done. I think we can be more specific though. I want to read something to you from Genesis 39, from the New English Bible. It's verse 1 of Genesis 39. In the New English Bible it says, When Joseph was taken down to Egypt, he was bought by Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's eunuchs, captain of the guard, an Egyptian. One of Pharaoh's eunuchs. If you think it seems unlikely, can I remind you that in these times it was quite common for eunuchs to be appointed to places of high office, quite common. Do you remember Rabsaris, the ambassador of the king of Assyria, who came to Hezekiah? Well, he was uh, the chief eunuch. Indeed, the very word Saris means eunuch, Rabsaris. And then there's Acts chapter 8, verse 27, And Philip arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, Queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasure. Very often, eunuchs are given the highest offices in these times, sometimes military, sometimes civil. And the reason was they were reliable, steady, stable, devoted. So it's no great surprise that. Potiphar, captain of the guard, could have been a eunuch. For those who are interested, the word which is translated eunuch is translated eunuch 17 times in the Old Testament. Now, if you're willing to receive it, and if you don't, I don't don't mind, but if you're willing to receive it, it does explain some of the things which occur in the 39th chapter of Genesis. Of course, it could be said, would any woman in her right mind marry a eunuch? Well, some women might, if the eunuch was a man of high rank and Potiphar was. Some some women will do a great deal to attain their ends if the glory is good enough. Now here is a strange thing to notice. How Potiphar dealt with Joseph over this matter. Remember what it would be, a slave who had allegedly attempted to rape the mistress. And Potiphar gets rid of Joseph by putting him in prison and not too bad a prison at that. Now I'm asking you, does it seem, does it seem reasonable? Does it make sense? Well, t- try to work it out in terms of what we know of our own civilization. With respect, take your own country, I use it, I know it's not your country really, but you know what I mean, take the United States of America. Just imagine a landowner in Louisiana, say, in the beginning of the last century, and one of the slaves assaults the master's wife, tries to rape her in her own bedroom. What think you, the master, would have done? Do you think he would have asked for a mild prison sentence or reached for his gun? What do you think, knowing your own history? Well you see here the situation is is more well it's it's more clearly defined. Here in Genesis thirty nine, we have a man of the master race. An important man of the master race whose honour has been assaulted, whose wife has been assaulted by a mere slave who has no rights whatever. It seems to me that I would have expected Joseph to have been thrown to the crocodiles without a moment's hesitation. And there's another thing too. This Potiphar happens to be the chief executioner as well. So he isn't a man. He has a certain amount of influence in the right direction. The chief executioner. But you see, here is the mystery. For some reason, Potiphar forbears. Why does he, why is he so reasonable? Or do you not think that in his heart he believes Joseph? more than his wife. He thinks that Joseph is the innocent party and the guilty party is the woman. And it's difficult for Potiphar, he cannot openly call his wife a liar, can he? And he cannot leave Joseph in this impossible situation, so he compromises, takes Joseph out of the way, and tries to forget the whole miserable business. There is just one little thought, brethren and sisters, I think we are entitled to, you may not agree, and you'll have to forgive me, but there's a little thought, you may think it's a naughty thought, but never mind. I think we are entitled to ruminate upon it, before we leave this part of the narrative. Think, or what do you suppose did Mrs. Potiphar think, or say to herself, one day later on, at a great banquet in the royal palace when she was introduced to Joseph, the new Grand Master of the government, Sina, the Princess of Egypt. Mrs. Potiphar must have been livid. Well, now let's move on a little bit to another episode in the life of Joseph. When his brethren came to Egypt and in the plea for sustenance, he is discovered as their long-lost brother. I bring you to Genesis 45, verses 1 to 8. You remember the situation. They are discovered as his brethren. Genesis 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not refrain himself before them all and stood by, them, but stood by him and he cried, Cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. He wept aloud and the Egyptians heard and the house of Pharaoh heard. Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him. For They were troubled at his presence. Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. they came near, and he said, I am Joseph your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Now be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, for yet five years in which there shall be neither plowing nor harvest, God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant in the earth and to save you alive by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither but God and he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now the words to fix on in that passage for this point is the words in verse 8 Now then it was not you that sent me hither but God and what Joseph meant was God was to be discovered in the whole process. Not just the appointment to power in Egypt, but in all the things which had preceded it. The jealousy and the dream and the separation and the brutality and the pit and the temptation and the prison, and then the deliverance and the ultimate triumph. It was not you that sent Peter, but God. That is to say. Not that God had manufactured all the circumstances, but he had used the circumstances to forward his purpose. That is not to say that Joseph's will was invaded by God's power so that Joseph became a puppet. This temptation to sin was real enough and Potiphar's wife was beaten in a fair fight. But Joseph, looking back, could see the unmistakable evidence that what had happened in all the long process did not happen just as a result of blind chance, but that things were working together for a common end. So in retrospection he could say, it was not you that sent me hither, but God. Now we can be sure of this, I think, those words were spoken when Joseph was able to look back and mark the pattern of the process. But when he was in the midst of the process, no doubt it was different. More than once, he must have been sad and weary and downcast and afraid. More than once, because he is a man of like passions with ourselves, he must have been baffled and perplexed by the strange things which were coming upon him. Perhaps very conscious of his weakness, but finding no reason for his adversity. If I could just give you one illustration of this, there's another little sentence in the narrative, which seems to me to be so full of significance. It's in Genesis 40. Genesis forty verses, verse twenty. You remember when they, when Joseph was in prison. Verse twenty of Genesis forty, and it came to pass the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast unto all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and the head of the chief baker among his servants, and he restored the chief butler unto his butlership again, and he gave the cup into Pharaoh's hand but he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph, but forgot him. The butler forgot Joseph. The butler had promised Joseph that when his freedom came, when the amnesty came, he, and he was once more Pharaoh's butler, he would speak to the king on behalf of Joseph and secure his release also. Imagine then with what hopefulness Joseph would wait for the news of his deliverance after the butler's intercession. And as the days lengthened into weeks and the weeks into months, imagine with what disappointment Joseph would realize that he was still forgotten. The butler forgot Joseph. You know, I heard a man say once that, that sort of thing has been going on all down the ages, and the man's name hasn't always been Butler. Sometimes, when men are companions in adversity and one of them escapes to the freedom, they so soon forget those who are left in bonds and suffering. So the Butler forgot Joseph, but God remembered him. Behind the very present realities of hardship and difficulty, there is the invisible watchfulness of God. And it teaches us that though he is invisible, he is never indifferent. Things which at the time appear trivial and unconnected and hard and bitter and disappointing, may nevertheless be charged with significance, indeed may be full of promise, though we cannot see it at the time. And this strange story of Joseph began because, being the son of his father's old age, he was loved by his father with a special tenderness, That provoked the jealousy of his brethren, and so began that strange process which led him to Egypt and to being the saviour of all who came to him. As they said, the saviour of the world. It was not you that sent me hither, but God. And although poor Joseph never knew it at the time, God, as it were, had gone before him and prepared the way. And although the way led him through hardness and adversity, it was all done so that he could at last come to the place of triumph and safety. You see, everything that God does and through his people is done in love so that they may be blessed and never harmed. Some of the Lord's sternest words are spoken to save us from harm and to do us good. I'm thinking of Matthew 5, verse 30. If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. Could there be harder words than that? If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. Those words are spoken in love. Remember how the sentence goes on? If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. For it is better. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than to have two hands and go into Gehenna. The process is something that may be better for thee. To be one-handed, but still in God's care. Joseph's life teaches us that God is in the hardship as well as in the blessing. God is in the pit as well as in the palace. The Apostle Paul told it out of his experience, and Joseph told it out of his. It was not you that sent me hither, but God. Let's look at something else. Because this unveils Joseph perhaps more than anything else. Genesis 50. Verse 15 to 21. This is later on, after they had gone to bury their father, when the old man was gone, remember that. Verse 15, and when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that uh, Joseph will hate us and will fully requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a message unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, forgive. I pray thee now the transgression of thy brethren and their sin, for that they did unto the evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the transgression of the servants of God, of thy father. Joseph wept when they spake unto him. His brethren also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. But Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God. And as for you, ye meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people life. Therefore fear ye not. I will not assure your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly. Now here's something to ponder, brothers and sisters. It's an interesting thing to notice. How men behave when the tables are turned. That is, when the condemned suddenly become the judges. When the prisoners suddenly become the wardens. When the powerless suddenly have authority. Now, Notice Joseph's brethren expected him to take revenge. Will you notice that? They expected him to take revenge. And Joseph words in in verse 19, Am I in the place of God? Now that could mean two things. It could mean, and I fear it often has meant at different times, I do not take vengeance because God... If God did not, then I would. But being sure that he will, I can wait. I can wait. I can watch the decline of their fortune. I can see the process of evil. I can observe the grief I can take note of the loss and the failure and I will be able to say, I knew it, I told you so, I haven't touched him. God has taken vengeance much better than I could. I'm quite satisfied. It could have meant that. Sadly, it has, I in many times. But not in the case of Joseph, if I have read it right. This, I believe, was his meaning. Am I in the place of God? Meaning, if God does not avenge, Dare I avenge? Dare I seek to rejudge that which has been judged? Dare I snatch the balance from God's hand and impose that which he has released? See, Paul once quoted and said, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And did he mean, therefore, wait and see God's wrath? Take and glory in God's wrath? Is that what he meant? Well, listen. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him, and if he thirsts, give him to drink. This was Joseph's greatness. He looked thankfully on the good which had come out of the forces, which seemed to be so cruel. In Genesis 50, verse 20, You thought evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. Therefore fear ye not. I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. And then we can mark that Joseph's forgiveness was utterly unconditional. He did not hold his brethren as it were in suspense. He did not, as it were, put them on their good behavior, as though to say, I hold this threat over you. If you ever do it again, then watch out. That is forgiving and not forgetting but it seems that Joseph is anxious that his brethren shall forget. Not a word to suggest it should be retained. His voice is tender. I I sense it. You sense it. His voice is tender. It is consoling. His pardon is full and frank and free. It has to be measured by this fact, too. How many men think you, in his day, wielding his power, exercising his authority, would have shown such mercy and such gentleness? Indeed, how often has the opposite been common. When power and vengeance are joined together, brethren and sisters, the very worst evils are sometimes unleashed. We have seen it, sadly, in our own world. It is a mark of greatness that some men are able to resist this temptation, and Joseph was one such man. So what shall we say, finally? I suppose the history of every man has two sides. The outward life of circumstances, the inward life of motives, Now, Joseph's outward circumstances were checkered with misfortune. Hatred, early loss of his home, cruelty, slavery, prison, neglect, slander, envy, temptation, and then suddenly the very opposite. Exaltation, power, rank, authority, riches. And looking at his inner life, we can notice with what calm dignity he moved from one condition to the other. There was no expression of bitterness, no wailing over the cruelty of his captors, No denunciation of the falseness of friendship, no sarcastic skepticism about human honor. Indeed, if ever a man had cause for doubts, he did. And yet his heart is not soured and his spirit is not crushed. This was part of Joseph's greatness. Then another thing, in the midst of all the power and the pomp of of Egypt, let us notice this. He is a Hebrew man, still. Essentially a Hebrew man, elevated as he was to high power, he did not depart from the principles of his true life as a man of God. In spite of the elevation, Joseph is a humble man. I sense that he is a humble man. There is never a hint in the narrative that he forgot his true home. Although he married into one of the noblest families of Egypt, yet he never sought to become a naturalized Egyptian, never. His heart was in that fair land where he once tended his father's flocks in the days of his genial boyhood. It seems to me he bore this unsophisticated spirit, a faithful Hebrew in the midst of Egyptian pomp and pagan splendour. And finally, the other aspect of the inner life uh, is this, to mark his benevolence. You see, the system that he proposed and followed to meet the famine in Egypt, in the underlying impulses of its design, was to save the hungry, and was to succour the deprived. That is to say, in the heart of him, in the heart of him, he was a good man. He was at the heart of the great social revolution in Egypt. Through him, the nation um, became compacted into a new unity, and, and the power was devoted in the hands of the royal government through a period when perhaps the nation could well have disintegrated and failed under this awful impact of the famine. There could have been a revolution of the wrong kind. So, perhaps the final measurement we can make is in his death. After 110 years of life, reading between the lines, I think we can say, at least I would say, I feel every man in Egypt felt that in losing Joseph, they had lost a friend. Indeed, they had lost a savior. That conclusion is not drawn from the details of Joseph's funeral, because there are virtually none about his funeral. I draw that conclusion that they felt they had lost a friend and a savior from the details of Jacob's funeral. The greatness of that funeral astonished even the Canaanites. It was a royal funeral, the funeral of Jacob. And it wasn't for Jacob's sake. It was because he was the father of Joseph. So Joseph's final words are, in a way, microcosmic of his life and his faith. In the fifty. 50th chapter of Genesis, verse 25. He says, God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land into the land which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And ye shall carry my boat from hence." So, let the Hebrew man in the New Testament give us the final verdict on the man who passed from rags to riches in a strange land that Hebrew man wrote, by faith, notice the words, because every word is important, by faith. Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel, and gave commandment concerning his bones. Right to the end, he was a man of utter faith. And in Psalm 105, it is written about God, he sent a man to, Before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant whose feet they hurt with fetters, he was laid in iron until the time that his word came. The word of the Lord tried him. Now, brothers and sisters, in that testing, he was made to be outward, what he was inwardly. I believe that to be a revelation of great. He was a man of faith and fervor and fidelity.